If you can open with me to Romans 15, Romans 15, welcome to week 35 of our Romans series, and we have two more weeks left as we've been walking through this um, absolutely deep yet beautiful and glorious letter written by Paul to the church at Rome. As we saw last week, beginning at Romans 15, verse 14, Paul begins his conclusion. Of course, it's a long conclusion, but he began with the deep and the wide mission of the church and his place within it as a minister of the gospel. And today we come to 12 verses that seem random, like they're not going anywhere. Uh, at first, it sounds like just a lot of insignificant details that Paul is just throwing out. But Paul is using this section to declare his plans, what his plans are in delivering the gospel throughout the world, while also declaring what it is that has woven the church in Rome together, and by extension, what, what weaves us together as the body of Christ. Have you ever compared the front and the back of a, a tapestry? The front of a tapestry is art. The, the hands of a skilled weaver displays, um, or is displayed incredible artistry, fine detail, the world's best art museums, um, collect the world's best tapestries and display them as a rare but beautiful form of art. The back of the tapestry, however, is a mess. So a, a tapestry is, is made by weaving together different colored threads and images. Designs are created, interplay between the different colors and textures. And what is clear on the front as something beautiful is chaos on the back. The back shows something of the image, but it looks more like something a child did than something a master artist um, did. It, it lacks um, any kind of clarity, any kind of detail, any kind of, of nuance. Where the front is smooth, the back is covered with knots and, and loose ends everywhere. And we are meant to see and to admire the front of the tapestry, but not the back of it. And this often has served as an illustration um, of the truths of how God works in our lives and also in the life of the church to create something that's absolutely beautiful, sometimes even out of, of chaos. Yet if all you could see was the back of the tapestry as it was being woven, you would conclude that nothing beautiful was actually happening. There's nothing good coming. Yet when you flip it over and you look at it from the front, you see where every strand, every detail had and found its perfect place according to the desire of the artist. And here's what we know. One day, God will flip over history, and we will see that every strand of our lives was part of God's picture woven together for our good and for His glory. Every part of it. One day, God will flip it all over, and all we can see right now is the backside, but one day we will see the front. I think of the poem written by Corey Ten Boom, called The Master Weaver's Plan. But I want to just put it on the screen and just read it to you. Just think about these words. She says, My life is but a weaving between my God and me. So we'll put it on the screen now. There we go. Between my God and me. I cannot choose the colors he weaveth steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow, and I in foolish pride forget he sees the upper and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly will God unroll the canvas and reveal the reason why. 
The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. He knows, he loves, he cares. Nothing this truth condemn. He gives the very best to those who leave the choice to him. But in this life, brothers and sisters, we see the underside. All we can see is the backside. God sees the upper side. He sees what he is doing. And this is a, serves, hopefully, as an effective illustration for the truth that for now, we get to only see the backside of what God is weaving together while clinging to the promise that one day we will see all that God has been up to, all that God has been doing to bring good for us and glory for ourselves. One day we'll truly be able to see where his goodness and his mercy has followed us all the days of our lives. But this also illustrates something else equally well in terms of good deeds. And I'm not talking about good deeds that you do in order to earn salvation. So we throw that out the window. You cannot earn salvation. It can't be done. But I'm talking about good deeds that come from being saved. As we say a lot around here, we are saved by faith alone. But faith that saves is never alone. So faith that saves will always be accompanied by works. By good works for the glory of God. But just think about those good works. As Christians, we want to be known for good works, for things that we do for the glory of God, for things that we do for the needs of other people. So we go through life and we do good works. And far more often than not, these works seem small. They seem insignificant. We we rarely talk a person off the ledge. We rarely write a check that changes a person's life or ministry forever. We rarely save a drowning child or diffuse a ticking time bomb. So we rarely do those things. Thanks. Instead, we interact with people for a moment and we attempt to say something, anything that might be an encouragement to them. We serve the Lord and we we serve sometimes in ways that we think are just small and again, insignificant. We give towards the church and towards ministries that tug at our heart strings. We speak of Christ to others and sometimes it seems like it does absolutely no good whatsoever. And most of our good deeds go unnoticed by the world around us. And not just by the world around us, I would even lay this before us. Sometimes we even fail to notice and even remember the good deeds that we've done. So sometimes we even forget the things that the Holy Spirit has led us to do. But here's the good news. Don't miss this. The world might forget and you might forget, but God won't forget. God won't forget anything that we do for his glory. He won't forget. He sees, he knows, he remembers, and he uses it. Just as one day we will see the beautiful tapestry that God has been weaving together through our our service, through the events that maybe we wouldn't have, have chosen, but we did what the Holy Spirit called us to do. And in the same way, we will see what God did through all of those good deeds. We'll we'll see it. We will see how speaking a word of encouragement resonated in somebody's heart and life. We will see how giving that money, whatever it was, accomplished something amazing. We might even see one day how giving a box, a shoebox filled with some toys, changed not just a kid's life here on this earth, but changed their eternal life. We'll be able to see that. We'll be able to see that Speaking the gospel to somebody actually served as a pebble in their shoe. That um, 
ended up breaking their hardened heart to the point where they got tired of walking in that way and they submitted to the Lord. Some, someday God will show us the tapestry and he will show us how he worked it all for our good and for his glory. We'll see how even the difficult parts of our lives, God put it in there for the sake of shining forth his glory to the world around us. And when we see it, we will rejoice. We'll rejoice. And it's hard to say that now to think about every hurt, every pain, every loss. And yet when we see how God used it all, we'll rejoice. So I want us to now turn to the word of God. And we're going to read these 12 verses, and I've already kind of prefaced it. It's going to sound like random, all over the place stuff, but there's a, a point here, and I pray that we'll, we'll hit a few of them. If you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand as we honor God's word together. And beginning at verse 22, all the way to the end of the chapter, verse 33, um, let us go. So this is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you, once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia I have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought to also be of service to them in material blessings. When, therefore, I have completed this and I have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come. Lord, I think of a song that we sang earlier in the first service. All is vain unless the Spirit of the Holy God comes down. Lord, everything we do here, Lord, is vain unless you show up, unless you are among us, unless we are submitting ourselves to you in this moment. Lord, all is vain unless, God, you are the center. Father, be the center. Lord, be the one that we look to, not as a means to an end, Lord, but you are the treasure. And just speak, oh God, speak by your word and through your spirit, speak. Lord, just have your way. In this time, in Jesus' name, amen, and you may be seated. What, what strikes me when I read these words is that Paul had such satisfaction knowing that he lived inside the will of God. Think about what it would be like for you to say, every day of my life, I have lived inside of God's will for that day. Can we often say that? Yet Paul did. What a wonderful thing to know that everything you do, you're inside God's will. Paul, even to the point at the end of his ministry, Paul says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. I finished the race. Paul, at the end of his life, is able to say, God, I finished what you called me to do. Oh, to God, we could say that. Amen. At the end of our lives, not, God, I, I got a quarter of the way done. 
God, I finished that mile of that marathon that you had for me. No, I finished, God, what you called me to do. And what we see from Paul's life and even from our own is that although we are able to know the will of God, we're able to do the will of God, we don't always know for sure what God is doing. Even though we sometimes try to act like we know what God is doing, we don't always know why God does what he does. But let me just say this this morning, and please hear this. You don't have to understand all that God is doing in order to trust him. In order to trust him, he is trustworthy. And if you don't believe that statement, ask Job. Job didn't know all that God was doing, and yet he trusted God. Ask Joseph. Joseph didn't understand why his brother sold him to Egypt, but God was doing something. Ask Daniel, who didn't understand why God allowed him and, and these young boys to be taken to Babylon. Or ask the writer of Ecclesiastes. We don't have to know all that God is doing in order to be able to trust him. Our seeing the tapestry from God's viewpoint and from God's understanding and understanding the whole story is not the answer. Trusting that God is doing something is the answer. Trusting that God is doing something even if you can't see it. That God is making something beautiful. That he's a a God who redeems and restores even the most broken and hopeless situations, even when we don't understand why or or how it can be done, God is doing it. And God, again, he calls us to live exclusively looking at the backside or the underside of the tapestry. We can't see all that he is doing, but our hope from this side is there's a God who knows me, who loves me, who cares for me. And he is doing something for me. And he's doing something for his church. So I want to use the 12 verses that we just read. And I want to unpack three purposes that shows why the church at Rome and us are woven together. And and we don't know every detail, but we know the purpose. So number one, we are woven together for the mission of God. We are woven together for the mission of God. This is kind of what Paul had on his mind last week when we were looking, but we're going to kind of continue this this thought. Paul says in verse 22, I have so often been hindered from coming to you. Paul wanted to go to Rome. He begins this letter in chapter 1, verses 10 and 13 by saying that I want to come to you. Yet, plans aren't always fulfilled. Now, we know that, right? We make plans, and those plans don't always happen. And not only do we know that, Paul knew that. Paul made plans. And when you read this passage, you find out all these plans that are bubbling up in in Paul's mind. Paul had plans to go to Spain, but first of all, he had to go through Rome. But before he went to Rome, he had to go to Jerusalem. And if you read the biography of Paul's life throughout Scripture and put it together, you'll find that almost none of the plans worked out the way Paul probably thought they were going to. Paul lived a life of of ministry, and he lived a life of missions, but he also lived a life of hindrance. He lived a life of roadblocks. He had the roadblocks of enemies. He had the roadblocks of persecution, but he also had the roadblocks, get this, of following what God called him to do. So he had these plans. So think about this. He had these plans. I want to go to Rome, but God says, no, from Jerusalem, you're going to go on a missionary trip, and then you're going to go on a second one, and you're going to go on a third one. And Paul, all the while, is saying, but God, I want to do this. And God is saying, well, that's great that you want to do that, but here's what I want you to do. And sometimes, let's be honest, there's things that we say, God, I, let me do this. And sometimes our, our, our intentions are well. Sometimes our intentions probably aren't that well. 
Maybe we're doing it because we want the recognition for it. Maybe we're doing it just because we um, have something in our heart. But God's saying, I know better. I know better. I'm able to do something better in this. So we trust what God is doing. So from Paul's perspective, his plans for God were not accomplished. Yet from God's perspective, all that he wanted to accomplish through Paul was fulfilled. And just think about this. And don't miss this part. If Paul would have somehow gotten to Rome before this, we would not have this amazing letter that we have. Just let that sink in for a second. If Paul somehow would have said, okay, God, I know you're calling me here, but I'm going to cut it short so I can go to Rome because I really want to go there. He probably would have not felt burdened to write this letter, and we would not have this amazing, um, rich theology that nourishes our soul and is an anchor for us. We would not have this amazing doctrines that we had to stand upon. And here's where we see, and don't miss this, hindrances in our lives and even and our spiritual plans for God are not hindrances for God. Things that hinder us will not hinder him. Things that stop us don't stop him. We have to understand this is the God that we serve. One, one very wise author wrote this. If I am told that the road to my glorious destination is marred by loose rocks and potholes, every jolt along the way reminds me that I'm on the right road. I'm on the right road. We are on the right road. And evangelizing the eastern part of the empire did not happen quickly or easily for Paul. Paul faced exposure and hunger and shipwreck and robbery and imprisonment and floggings and stonings and slander. Paul even faced opposition with those who were once called his friends. And any one of those would have been enough to discourage any of us or make us wonder, is this really your will, God? Maybe I'm out of your will because all these bad things are happening, but Paul knew better. And he kept moving forward, so much so that we see in verse 23, Since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. Now let me just stop for a second and lay this before you. So Paul is saying to the church at Rome, I want to go to Spain. That doesn't sound like a big deal to us, or maybe if we've been to Spain, we're like, wow, yeah, I've been there, cool place to go. Paul would have been 60 years old when he's declaring this ambition for his life and ministry. John Stott has calculated that assuming Paul traveled by sea, the first leg of his journey from Corinth to Jerusalem would have been around 800 miles. The second from Jerusalem to Rome would have been 1,500 miles. And the third from Rome to Spain would have been 700 miles, making a total of 3,000 miles by ship. Also, Paul would have then had to learn Latin because that was the language in Spain. So you have a 60-year-old planning a 3,000-mile tri trip by ship. We're not talking about Carnival or Royal Caribbean here. All the while learning Latin for the sake of the burning passion in his heart to take the gospel to Rome, to take the gospel to, to Spain. And may we never forget, as we heard last week, that Jesus came on mission, he lived on mission, he died on mission, and he has called us and left us with a mission. Our conversion is not just about salvation. Our conversion is about the mission that God has given to us to accomplish. As we said last week, the church has many responsibilities, many amazing things that we can partake in, but we have one mission, and that's to make Jesus known in this world. Many good responsibilities, one mission, to make Jesus known. 
And this is where we see that the gospel always leads to mission because the gospel is the story of a God with a missionary heart. The gospel is the story of a father who, whose desire is for all to come to repentance. The gospel is the story of a shepherd who seeks and saves that one lost sheep. The gospel is the story of a spirit, the Holy Spirit, who has a white-hot passion for the gospel to go to the ends of the earth. So the purpose of, of God's word is to reveal to us God's plan and to understand our purpose in it and to show us the commission, the great commission that Jesus has left us. And this is where we, we need to understand, brothers and sisters, the great commission, go into all the world, proclaim the gospel, um, making disciples of all nations, all of this picture, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them. This is not a suggestion. It's a command. Jesus didn't say, well, if you feel like it, if you want to work it into your schedule, no, Jesus says part of your schedule as you go, as you go, do this. It's the command given to us, leading to Revelation 7 and 9, people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people being around the throne. When we, when we study the word of God, we see God's purpose. We see God's plan for saving us and us being here, and we hopefully, by his grace, want to be a part of it. This is our Christian duty. Before we move on to the next truth, let me just lay this before us. I just said Christian duty. And sometimes when we think that something is a duty, it's something we have to do, here's what we automatically think. Well, all joy is gone with that. If I have to do it, then there's no fun in it. Like, if, if somebody makes me do something, then what good is it? And this is where we miss the point, that God's commands are not burdensome. His commands are glorious. And God brings something we have to do, duty, and delight together. In fact, let me just say this. We should pray that our hearts would unite with his commands and that we would take joy in his ways. For when we give ourselves to the will of God, we find life's greatest delight. We find life's greatest. Here's what I know. If you are outside of God's will today, you are the most miserable person in the world, regardless of if a smile's in your face or not. If you are outside of God's will today, you have no peace in your life, regardless of your smile when you walk in this building. If you are outside of God's will, you have no peace within, and really you have no peace to give to anyone else. But when you are inside God's will, doing what you know God has called you to do, there is joy, there is delight, there is peace, and there is hope that can't be taken away from you. Oh, to God that we would understand we are woven together for the mission of God. But then secondly, we are woven together for the blessing of others. We're woven together for the blessing of others. Look at verse 24. Paul says this, and you can see on the screen, I hope to see you in passing to be helped on my journey there by you. Verse 25, at present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. So even though Paul really wanted to go to Rome, he's saying, I can't come to you now. I got to go to Jerusalem. And so why did he have to go to Jerusalem? Well, we know from Acts 11:28, that's in the Bible, and from Jewish historian Josephus has outside the Bible that there was a famine in Judea um, from A.D. 44 to A.D. 48. So this might have been part of the reason why Paul is saying, I've got to go to Jerusalem and take this money that I have collected from them. The other reason is the Jews living in Jerusalem hated Christians, hated them, so much so that they killed them, they persecuted them. People who came to faith in Christ, they lost their jobs, they lost their families, lost their income, lost everything yet they had Jesus and because they had Jesus they refused to recant they refused to go back they refused so Paul is taking up this collection for the 
brothers and sisters, for the believers in Jerusalem because of all the things that they are facing. And in taking up this collection, Paul is saying, I'm taking this myself. Paul could have sent someone else, but Paul is saying, this money is going to go by my hand to the believers. Now, why would Paul do that? Especially when you read in the book of Acts, when Paul is making his way back to Jerusalem, and there are some that come to him and say, don't go to Jerusalem. Bad things are going to happen. And Paul says, why are you breaking my heart? I'm ready to die. If I go to Jerusalem and they kill me, I'm ready. And so Paul says, I'm going to Jerusalem. So he goes there. And part of the reason he goes there because that was part of his commission. In Galatians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, we read this. When James and Cephas and John, if that don't make any sense to you, it means Peter, James, and John, who seemed to be pillars, pillars of the church, perceived the grace that was given to me, Paul's writing, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So Paul's saying, they're going to the Jews, we're going to the Gentiles. And then Paul says this, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So Paul said, when they sent me out, they asked me, make sure you don't forget the poor among us. And this is what Paul is doing here. He's saying, I'm not forgetting the calling, the commission that's been given here to use the Gentile believers and to let them be a blessing to the hurting Jewish believers. John Piper put it this way. God loves to refresh his people through the refreshing of his people. God loves to refresh his people through the refreshing of his people. God wants to use you and me to be a refreshment to others, which begs the question, how are we being a blessing to others? How are you using what God has given to you to bless other people. For you see, we serve a faithful God who is good to us. God is good to us. We are never alone because God is with us. Not only is is he with us, he provides for us. Both earthly, spiritual needs are being met in him. This is a marvelous thing that we get to enjoy. Yet God doesn't just simply bless us so that we can buy a nice car and put hashtag blessed on the back of it. No, he blesses for something more. We're blessed so that we understand how much we're loved and we're blessed so that we can understand how much responsibility lies before us, meaning we are blessed to be a blessing to others. Don't miss it. God blesses you so that you're a blessing to others. You go, well, if God blesses me in this way, if I give it out, I have no more blessings left, but that's not how God works. God waits for us to pour out the blessings that he has given to us, and God pours more in and more in. And the more we give out, the more he pours in. And so think about how this works. God blesses us so that we can bless others. God comforts us so that we can comfort others. God forgives us, commands us to forgive other people. This is a picture of how God works. I love In his book, Living in Christ's Presence, Dallas Willard wrote these words, and they're powerful words. He says, what is a blessing? Blessing is the projection of good into the life of another. It isn't just words. It's the actual putting forth of your will for the good of another person. It always involves God. Because when you will the good of another person, you realize only God is capable of bringing that. So therefore, we don't say bless you. We say God bless you. Because only God is able to bless Blessings upon blessings, we have been blessed so that we can bless others. So we are woven together for the mission of God. We're woven together for the blessing of others. And then lastly, we are woven together through fellowship and prayer. 
were woven together through fellowship and prayer. And Paul says in verse 29, he says, when I come. By the way, Paul would make it to Rome. Now, here's the beautiful thing. Paul would make it to Rome, and the Roman government would actually pay for it. And that's the crazy thing of how God works. Now, yes, he would come as a prisoner, but still they, they would pay for it. So Paul went to Rome. Paul faced charges that were leveled against him. Paul um, had assassination attempts. He eventually appealed to Rome. He makes it to Rome through this crazy journey on a ship, even facing shipwreck. He comes to Rome under guard. He has a guard with him at all times, yet he turns this opportunity into, number one, he writes four prison epistles, four, four letters to churches, encouraging them, and he even encourages the palace guard and wins them and, and preaches the gospel to them. Just think about this. You're in prison. That'd be a great time for me to be, write songs like, oh, woe is me, nobody knows the trouble I've seen, and those things. Not Paul. Paul is using whatever circumstances to make the gospel known. Yet what was Paul's aim? Look at verse 29. I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Paul was sure that when he arrived in Rome, however he got there, whenever he got there, that he would arrive in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Now, Paul had no idea how he was going to get there. He had no idea that when he got to Rome, it would be right after a shipwreck. It would uh, be in change, that he would be considered a prisoner, that he would um, wait years to, to stand before Nero. All of, of those things, um, they're waiting. he had no idea that death might await him, yet Paul knew whether he had a lot or whether he had nothing, whether he was free or in prison, whether he was feasting or being beaten by rods. Paul knew that the blessing of Christ was upon his life. Not because of what he was experiencing, but because of who he was. Let me say this again. The blessing of Christ is upon your life, not because everything in your life works out the way you want to. The blessing of Christ is upon your life because you're his. You're his. Let me just go a step further and just, just kind of hit us maybe the place we need to be hit. If all you do is think God owes you and think that God needs to give you everything you want, then really what you want is you want God to be your servant and you want to be God. And I give you a day. I give you a day to be God, and you will have this world so screwed up. Um, we'll all be saying, please let them stop being God. And let God be God because that's who he is. But that's, that's the selfishness in us. Is we, think, we think even our selfishness that we can use God to get what we want. And God in that says, no, I'm, I'm what you need. I'm everything you need. This is, you need me in all things. Paul came to Rome in chains, but he arrived with joy and full of purpose and, and blessing. Listen, can, can we see trouble? Can we see difficulty? Can we see persecution and call it blessing? Paul could. Do you believe that whatever happens to you, that as long as you serve God and as long as you bless others, that you will be a blessing? You'll be full of God's blessing? I hope you can because the Bible says that's the truth of it, but God determines what those blessings are. God determines how he chooses to bless you. And let me just say this. God doesn't normally choose to bless us by giving us everything we want. He chooses to bless us by giving us everything we need. And in that, we come to understand that we need him for more and more and more. And another thing here that, that we need to see is Paul is saying no matter who you are, no matter how strong in the faith you think you are, you need the body of Christ. You need the body of Christ because you are a weak brother or you are a weak sister. 
here's the deal. Sometimes we think that, well, no, my, my calling is just to be an encouragement to other people. They don't have to know what I'm going through. And, and we really mess up because there are people sitting in here that are hurting or God will bring him to here that are hurting. And sometimes they look around, and they go, well, that person has a smile on their face. That person has a smile on their face. They must have it all together. Well, how are you doing? I'm blessed by the best. Couldn't be, any, couldn't be any better when deep down your life is a mess. You can't hold anything together, but you sit here and you lie through your teeth. And what you do, in essence, is you give no hope for the hurting person that wants hope. That must not have resonated for any of us. But here's the deal. We don't make most of God by lying and telling people that we have it all together when we don't. We make the most of God by telling people I'm a messed up individual who needs God's grace and mercy every day of my life. And he'll, here has, here's how God has dealt with this mess throughout this week. And people hear that and they go, you know what? If, if God can use that mess, he can use me. And there's hope. Oh, that we would understand the hope that we can give to others. If if you aren't, if you don't understand the need for each other, you are stifling the work that the Holy Spirit wants to do in your life. You're stifling it. Now to verse 30. Paul says, I appeal to you, strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. So Paul's idea of a church community was a group saved by God's grace and supported one another. And the word strive there literally means to fight together. Now some of us are like, oh, fighting? I can do that absolutely finally something I can do but what Paul doesn't mean is that the church that just fights among themselves but a church that fights together for purpose meaning and we talked about this a few weeks ago that many churches are good at fighting um, one another what they're not good at doing is fighting the enemy we need to make sure that we keep you might disagree with me and you might I might have opinions that guess what that you don't like but I'm not your enemy and I'm, it might be reversed, but you're not my enemy. The enemy is the enemy. And sometimes we think just because somebody shares a different opinion about something or a preference, they're the enemy. No, they're not the enemy. He's the enemy. May we never forget that. There's an enemy, and it's not you, and it's not me. May we keep our minds open to that. May we fight for the purpose that God has given to us. And then Paul says this part of striving together is, don't miss this part, praying for one another. We ought to be praying for one another. We ought to be praying for the work of the church. We ought to be praying for the mission of the church. We ought to be praying for the future of the church. If you are not praying for one another, you are not doing what God has called you to do. If you're not praying for one another, you are not fulfilling what God has called you to do. Who are you praying with in life? Who is it that you are praying with? Who are you praying for? Do they know it? Do they know that you're praying for them? Oh, to God that you would let people know if you're praying for them. Because here's the deal. If you come up to me and tell me, Listen, the Lord laid you in my heart, and I'm praying for you. My first thought is not going to be, they must think I'm pretty weak. My first thought is going to be, praise God, someone's praying for me. Praise God, someone's praying for me. Who are you, who are you praying for, and who is praying for you? Who is praying for you? Are you asking other people to pray for you? If you're not, then are you too good for prayer? If you never ask people to pray for you, that's probably because you have a self-sufficient heart that you don't ever want to let anyone know that you have a need. 
And you are cutting off people from doing what God commanded them to do, which is to pray for one another. Let people know so that we can pray for one another. We can do what God has called us to do. And then Paul closes this chapter this way, verse 33. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. What a reminder. He is the God of peace. And in case you have forgotten, just let me just lay this out in, in closing. And my closing is going to be a little quicker than, than Paul's closing. When you were outside of Christ, you were not a friend of God. According to the Bible, you were an enemy of God. So when you did not have Christ as your Savior, you were God's enemy. You were waiting God's wrath to come upon you. But when you trusted Christ, when you turned to him, the Bible says you became no more an enemy of God. You became his child, his son, or his daughter. And now you have peace with God. You're no longer God's enemy. You're now his child. But not only do you have peace with God, God gives you the peace of God. In the midst of every trial, every bit of chaos, everything that's going crazy around you, there can be peace and tranquility in your heart, in your life, because you know that God is in control. You know God hasn't called you to hold it together. He's holding it together. God's called you to, to rest in him as he holds you together. There's tranquility and peace in that. And here's the beautiful thing. In this chapter, chapter 15, in verse 5, we are told that God is the God of endurance and the God of encouragement. In verse 13, he's the God of hope. Now in verse 33, he is the God of peace. So he is the God of endurance. He's the God of encouragement. He's the God of hope. He's the God of peace. And don't miss this. He is ours. He's ours. He is yours and he is mine and he is working on this beautiful canvas that we can't see. All we can see is the underside. And sometimes it looks like chaos and it looks like that just doesn't look like the way I think it should look. But we can trust that God is doing what we can't. And our, our place here is to serve him and trust him. When I was praying this this morning, God led me to an old hymn we used to sing. I just want to end with these words. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. Just to take him at his word. Just to rest upon his promise. Just to know, thus says the Lord. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him. How I've proved him o'er and o'er. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus. Oh, for grace to trust him more. Brothers and sisters, trust him more. Trust him more today. Let us pray. I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to call the, the band up. And Father, as we just approach you now, we do so in this humble, holy moment. Rejoicing in you, God, the God of encouragement, the God of, of endurance, the God of hope, the God of peace. And you are ours. And Lord, you have you are weaving our lives together and you're weaving, Lord, your church together. And God, that is what we ask. Lord, help us to trust you in what you're doing in our lives, but help us also, Lord, to let you weave us, your church, together. To weave us together for the purpose that you have given to us. To make much of you in this lost and dying world. Lord, help us just to do mission together. Help us to be a blessing to others and many different ways as you bless us, Lord, to, to bless. Help us, Lord, to fellowship with one another. We need each other and help us to pray for one another. God, give us all people in our lives that we can pray with. Give us people in our lives, Lord, that we are praying for. 
give us people in our lives, God, that we are telling them how they can pray for us and trust in that they're doing it. We'll just live out these one another verses, God, as you weave us together. Lord, just finish this time. Whatever it is that you're asking, whatever it is that you're calling, well, may we do it. We just pray these things in Jesus' name.